0: Welcome to Scrappy ABM, your source for groundbreaking approaches that don't break the bank. ABM shouldn't cost 200K in tech to even get started. So if you want to get started with ABM or make your program even better without investing a massive amount of money, you're in the right place. Each week, we'll hear from the brightest minds in the marketing world who are redefining ABM, achieving incredible results with untraditional methods, limited resources, and a whole lot of creativity. This isn't a show about how much money you can spend on fancy tech or overhyped tools. Instead, it's about celebrating creative problem solving and the scrappiness it takes to get ABM right. We'll dive into how these marketing leaders built robust ABM strategies with limited resources, revealing the actionable insights that led to their biggest wins. So if you're a marketer ready to challenge the status quo and build a scalable, efficient, effective marketing strategy, Scrappy ABM is the show for you. So if you're ready to discover ABM strategies that are lean, impactful, and utterly transformative, let's dive into this episode.
1: We're on with Marketing Mason. Mason, welcome to the podcast. Thank you guys so much for having me. We are having just such a blast before we actually click record. I'm so excited for our conversation. Probably going to be one of my favorite podcasts of all time. So let's dive in. Let's make it happen. And we like to start by just giving a background. And I'd imagine that your background. Um, uh, just based off the couple minutes of talking with you already, goes in a very windy direction. But let's let's just hear from your from your own words. Uh, someone who's never heard of you, how would you describe yourself? Quick background, uh, whatever, however you want to take that. Yeah.
0: So, super long story short, I'm going to give you the full background. Grew up son of a landscape <laughs> architect, small business owner, and a mom that was in pharmaceutical sales. So that was my entire background of. Like, what does it look like to function grow a business, but also work in corporate America? I liked my dad's lifestyle more. So from there, I eventually came to faith, which is a whole side note, but decided I'm going to be a pastor. Tried that. Didn't work out. Uh, decided because my parents said, let's go get a degree in marketing. So I got that degree, met an incredible girl. was like, hmm, pastoral ministry is not working out, but I have this degree in marketing. I should probably go figure out how to make a living. So started in print advertising as an account executive in a parenting magazine in Mississippi. Then, very random. The next jump was then to a fintech company in the B2B tech SaaS space. So I became their marketing director out of the gate. Don't know how, but that's how it happened. Did that for about a year, became a StoryBrand certified guide and recognized I need a lot more support and mentorship to grow as a marketer. Then went agency side and I marketed an agency. So it's then marketing marketers to marketers. It's very fun. Did that for about (laughs) a year and a half. Our company got acquired by the world's most awarded B2B agency. So I went from a team of 25 to 600 on a global scale and actually became what is called their director of growth, which means I was in this weird hybrid role where I was doing both marketing and sales. So I sold to $60 billion companies, how to build account-based marketing programs, did that. And then about four months ago, uh, interviewed with this company called Sales Assembly, that was a 15 person team that offers skills development for the go-to-market team. I have been able to have massive career acceleration because I have invested personally a ton of time in specific learning and development. And recognizing that most companies that I work for didn't offer that for me, I had to go find it. Which is why I love Sales Assembly because it's a learning and development platform for everyone across the go-to-market team so that we can actually meet you where you are today, close your skill gaps, and it's provided by your company for you. So we've got 200 B2B tech clients that we serve today. So that is the long story short of how I went from one of a youth pastor into the director of demand gen at a learning and development company.
2: Wow, quite the windy road. (laughs) I (laughs) I wanted to be (laughs) wind. You told us, you you were honest. You know, let's get back to the early days. Um, Started at a magazine. What was the first job that you thought, wow, this has been incredible growth. And what growth was that? I think that'll help us start in that windy journey.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, with Parenting Magazine, um, I, within my first year, went from like account executive to sales team leader because I was just like a hardcore smile and dial kind of guy at that point. I didn't know anything else. Like I was straight out of college. So I was like, all right, this is what we're going to do. So I would just call
1: like 150 people a day. And and who are who you calling were they people that like uh, were like open to cold calls? How was that experience as well? Tell us a little bit about your time as an AE, because that's yeah, always that's fun, a- especially as a first like first job. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, primarily, no. I mean, most people are not
0: open to cold calls. But <laughs> the value that, that I was able to experience is the, the parenting magazine that I sold was distributed through the public and private school system, so it actually went home in the kids' backpacks. So it's a very unique distribution model. There's only two in the country that had that distribution model. And because of that, what we ended up actually seeing is quote unquote gatekeepers. And this is not a, this is not a comment right or wrong, but what we typically saw is that gatekeepers to decision makers within the state of Mississippi were moms. So they were familiar with the magazine. They're like, Oh, I raised my kid on that. It had been around for 30 years. So then they would love the magazine. So what, a lot of people view is that these gatekeepers are kind of obstacles for us. They were actually our biggest champion because, mm-hmm. you know, the budget holder that's typically a 60 year old white guy had never read our parenting magazine, just never done it. Like that was the state of Mississippi, right, wrong or indifferent. Like that was the reality. So like I made a ton of calls and I actually always tried to get the gatekeeper so that we could then come in. I'd bring cookies. I would have a <laughs> meeting. They would evangelize for us. And I became the guy that brought cookies and that always <laughs> resonates well. So that was the start. I ended up building up a portfolio of about $350,000 in print ad spend between your mom and pop shops all the way up to the state's largest hospital, which was called uh, UMMC. So I managed all of that portfolio. The way that we functioned was as a, as a full funnel AE. So I had no marketing support. I did all of my own outbounding. I did all of my own um, meeting setting. I did all of my own deals. And then I managed the accounts after they were sold. So that was kind of my gauntlet recognizing, okay, what are the different roles and the skill sets that are required? That was my first job. So again, I ended up managing roughly 40 to 50 different accounts with $350,000 in ads. I give you all that context. COVID then happened. And when COVID happens, schools shut down, school shut down. We lost our distribution model overnight. So the entire company was laid off, which was not great. So then (laughs) that's how I transitioned over into um, the b two b tech space you through a fintech company. So I can pause
1: there and let's, let's ask any questions. <laughs> <laughs> and so, like it sounds like you enjoyed sales. and obviously, like for people who are just listening to this, you've got an I love sales hat on. Uh, that's that's pretty impressive to come out your first job to to be assigned cold calling stuff like that and to actually really enjoy it. Um, I'm interested though, like, takeaways from that you sounded like you were owning the entire customer journey which is awesome from a marketing perspective what are the other takeaways that being like on the front lines from a sales and marketing perspective that you realize and now you take into you know your marketing director role all the way up to where you are today?
0: yeah I'd honestly say the two roles where I was most successful um, just in general were that role in a, in a re- weird roundabout way because it was a very difficult product with no real support, so to actually be able to have any level of success and make a solid living. Cause I mean, it's also straight commission. Like it was, it was a tough job. Yeah. Um, so there's that role. And then the director of growth role uh, that we'll touch on, I ended up selling about 1.7 million in about six months. I think between those two roles, because I actually have so much responsibility, there's also been a deep level of accountability that I had with the client. It's because I'm the one that's, Doing the initial cold call i'm doing the meeting setting i'm running that deal and then i manage them after they're sold they actually built a relationship specifically with me so when i made a promise i didn't pass it off to cs i passed it off to myself Mm. so at the end of the day if i made false promises i dealt with the repercussions and what i'm seeing is that that's actually a pretty significant disconnect between marketing sales and cs because marketing does their job to hit their quote unquote mql goals then sales misses their pipeline sales eventually just does a 50% discount to get the deal over the line and makes a lie about what is on the product roadmap. Then CS has to deal with it. And then we have a 50% churn rate for CS and we're blaming CS when in reality, marketing didn't deliver on pipeline in the first place. Sales had to heavily discount to get the deal at all. And then we're just not setting right expectations. So I think from from a perspective of lessons learned, when you're held accountable for the lifetime of the customer, you actually create better results in the long-term. It's harder in the short-term, but you create better results in the long-term.
1: Yeah, I love that. And uh, so I wanted to, to back up a little bit, talk a little bit about moving into, uh, so you, you got laid off due to COVID. You're moving into, um, you said an agency role was next or was there something in between? Yeah, so there was a B2B tech, fintech company. Okay. And- um,
0: what, what were you doing there? So I was their first ever dedicated marketing hire. So okay. I was hired on as a marketing analyst, but there's not really a whole lot of analyst <laughs> stuff to do. Like there was no marketing automation. They had a quote unquote CRM that was literally a glorified Rolodex. So within that role, I kind of came in. And again, at this point, my, my experience is a marketing degree that is, that didn't even touch on digital marketing and a role in which I sold print advertising so clearly I am the digital like native that everybody wants to build their digital marketing program so what I did is a lot of HubSpot a lot of SEM rush like I went and self-educated so at this point I'm also engaged my wife um at fiance at the time lives in a different city so I had about a six-month runway where I was like all right I can work 100 hours a week so I did 60 hours every single week about pers- around personal development to self-educate and then 40 hours a week actually doing the things that I learned like last night. So I did that <laughs> for a while. Um, that was exhausting. But what ended up happening is I actually built out, I, I audited the business. So after the first 90 days, I had kind of cleaned everything up and then actually come and presented to our executive team. Hey, here's a, here's a five-year roadmap. Like we should onboard with the CRM. We should get a marketing automation platform. We should be creating content. Like there's an SEO play that can be done because this industry is super old and outdated. Like we still think that trade shows are the only way to meet customers. There's no trade shows right now. It's still COVID. So maybe we should do something different. So from there, I ended up getting actually promoted to marketing director, which was neat. Got a 50% pay bump, (laughs) super neat. Um, Challenge though. It is one thing to see an incredible strategy laid out in a deck and to say, this is going to be the next two or three years of our life is another thing to live through the execution of building that program. So the challenge that I ended up running into with that organization is death by a thousand cuts and revisions. So anyway, we can talk more on that. I'm gonna pause for it again.
2: I mean, scaling from 25 people is what, what I think you said to 600 is incredible, right? Like you said, executing on that plan is one thing. What else about your job, besides now having this massive roadmap to execute on, what else about the job change or about the, the team culture, how you were navigating the team?
0: Yes. So let me make one quick clarification. Yes. The acquisition of from 25 to 600 is the next role in this current role. It was just me and a graphic designer. So we were living it up.
2: <laughs> the team was fantastic at that point. Yes. Were you, were you marketing on behalf of the agency or were you serving more client fulfillment? This is where you were marketing, marketing to marketers, right? Isn't that what you said?
0: So at this point, I'm still at the B2B tech company.
2: We need to get back. We need to roll it back. So you're at the fintech agency, is that correct?
0: I'm at the fintech company. Okay. Marketing so and it was a loan management practice. software.
2: Understood. Yes. Understood. Yeah. Okay. So you have this 90-day plan. Right? Yes. Where did you So even... in the first
0: 90 days, I kind of clean everything. Sorry. I first 90 days I clean everything up because we had like three LinkedIn pages and like nobody had any logins anywhere like it was just a mess so I cleaned everything up and then rolled out hey here's a three-year strategy of how we can actually essentially dominate the industry based on what I've seen as a gap analysis based on
1: what I understand now around SEO and like all that kind of stuff so yeah yeah I think I'm tracking I think I'm tracking I wanted to dive deeper and then we can kind of continue working through the progression of background but you said something super interesting you said that you spent like 60 hours a week, essentially self-educating. Number one, like w- why <laughs> why, and how did you feel the need to do this? Uh, I'd imagine that's a very small subset of the population that is actively like doing that much kind of self-improvement. And then number two, where obviously you, you didn't have sales assembly at a time. You're probably having to like look through a million different resources. So just talk about kind of like this self-education portion and talk about, I'm actually curious as well, how much of your marketing degree kind of played into any of that five-year plan or if it was all things that you found during your your self-education portion. So like I mentioned, I got laid off because of
0: COVID. What I didn't mention is that 20 days prior, I got engaged and I got a mortgage on a house. Oh, wow. (laughs) So when I got laid off, uh, we kind of skipped over that piece, but I mean, it was about a three and a half month timeframe where I literally sent out a thousand applications. It's not an exaggeration. Um, I had no network. I had no transferable skills other than cold calling for print advertising. (laughs) So, like when I actually landed a job and to be clear of the thousand applications I sent out, I got one job offer. I actually, I got two job offers. One of them was then revoked after I'd already accepted it because that manager got fired that week, which was an awesome experience. So I had one job offer out of a thousand. So to be very clear, the weight and the responsibility of I had just made a promise to my wife's father, I'm going to provide for her. I couldn't. So there's a very clear weight and responsibility that I felt. Yeah. So when I had that six-month roadmap to say, she's at a, she's in a different city, like we're planning our wedding, but like, I literally won't see her. Also, it's still COVID. So like, people are still really weird. So I've got a lot of time alone. Yeah. So what I'm going to do is ensure that I'm never going to get let go or fired and that I will always be employable. Yeah. So from that, like, that's where that came from. is gotcha. just a very clear, I, I've got it. Like, I have to make this work. Otherwise... I don't know what's gonna happen. So there's that piece. And then as far as the actual self-education, like if you go look at my LinkedIn, I think the number of certifications I have is 66 certifications. <laughs> so between SEM Rush and HubSpot and LinkedIn. And I also, uh, there's no certifications with this, but I joined a learning and development platform called Business Made Simple. And that's Donald Miller, that's StoryBrand. That's actually how I became a StoryBrand certified guide and became aware of that. And they just taught very simple approaches to how do you develop messaging for a brand? How do you build sales funnels? How do you actually do like the foundational elements of basic B2B marketing? Now we gotcha. can all talk about the merits of a lead generator and a sales funnel. But at that time, like that's what I needed to understand. Gotcha. I now understand there's dark social and attribution. Like, there's a whole lot more to it, but like baby, baby steps, I needed a sales funnel. So that's what I built. So gotcha. that's how that all came to be. And then to your question of like, how much did my marketing degree come into play? Like I, I alluded to it earlier, um, you know, the the degree that I had was experimenting with a <laughs> single course to cover digital marketing by the time I graduated. And it was an elective, like it wasn't even required. So like I did a ton of like marketing research and like integrated marketing communication strategy. And again, it was primarily like, how do we leverage billboards plus print to then create this cohesive strategy? And I'm like, I'm not going to use a billboard. (laughs) Like, just not going to happen. Everyone's in quarantine. Nobody's driving on the Five-year plan. (laughs) No. So, and like, I've talked, I've actually gone back to my professors and said to them, as kindly as I can, like, we didn't talk about content marketing. Like, that's, That's based, like, that's the critical foundation for everything that we do today is content. So I've actually, like, voiced that to former professors and almost, like, was an adjunct when I still lived in Mississippi on content marketing. So, like, I'm very clear, like, I'm not actually using my degree. I love the school that I went to. I love the things that I learned, but it doesn't actually apply to modern-day B2B marketing.
1: This, maybe we'll, we'll dive into this a little bit later because I love like uh, I love this concept and I love sales assembly because of this concept, uh, because there's a lot less of a lag in terms of what is the, what are the people in the real world actually doing versus what is what could we publish on our textbook and, and kind of sit down and standardize uh, before getting out to, to the masses. So we can, we can go into that when we get into the, uh, the sales assembly stuff, but I want to transition into, so you're a FinTech um, you know, applying the work and then you go on to a marketing agency and you said you were marketing on behalf of the agency, correct? You were never yep. kind of marketing as a fulfillment type person. I mean, there were the the
0: occasional one-off projects. So okay. the, the agency I worked for was a, was a story brand certified agency okay. and being one of the three story brand certified guides on staff, gotcha. like there'd be the occasional like, hey, can you do a messaging workshop? but I did, I think three of those in the two years that I worked there. So it was primarily focused on
1: marketing the agency itself. Okay, gotcha. And was this where you kind of came upon this idea of ABM? Uh, or was that at, at your previous role? Like when did ABM come into picture? Cause I know scrappy ABM, like it's one of the things on your LinkedIn recommendations. I'm excited to, to dive into yeah. that with you, but where did it actually like on the timeline, have we even got into the ABM period of your life yet? Or are we still on free yeah. ABM marketing Mason? No, no, no. It,
0: so agency world was where I definitely learned about account-based marketing. Like prior, I, I was talking with an agency, An incredible, incredible man named T C Jennings. And I owe a lot of what I know today about modern marketing to him. He ended up becoming an agency partner at my former company. And like he mentioned the concept of account-based marketing in passing and was like, you know, you should probably figure out like who your best fit customers are. And I was like, that's a great idea. he's like, Yeah, and you can like build a target account list and like market to them. I was like, that's crazy. What is that called? He's like it's account based marketing, but like you're not there yet. Like we need a new weapon. I was like, oh, okay. so like we never got there with the with the fintech company. Like <laughs> there was a lot that needed to be fixed. But like with Mojo Media Labs, they were a HubSpot agency that was really one of the early adopters of account based marketing. It's so like Sangram Verge's first book on ABM is B2B. The co-founders of Mojo are featured in that book. Like we were, Mojo was actually the first Terminus agency partner. So like, oh, wow. nice. Mojo was very deep in the ABM space. So yeah, that's where I like got my primary education on account-based marketing.
1: And then tell us about the concept of scrappy ABM. Is that like your own branded twist or what is the difference between account-based marketing and scrappy account-based marketing? Yeah. So that's my own branded twist
0: because and I kind of started to learn how to do it at the agency because You know, we were, we were an account-based marketing agency. So my boss came to me and said, Hey, we should probably be running some account-based programs for ourselves. (laughs) I was like, that really makes sense. Like we should, we should do that. (laughs) And then I also got, but like, we don't have a magic or we don't have um, an ad budget. We don't have an ABM platform. We don't have intent data. Like what you've got is free access to a data enrichment platform. And we use sales Intel at that time. You've got HubSpot. And you've got our website and then like LinkedIn. So whatever you can do with that, like make that happen. And I was like, all right. So that's, that's where I came to this realization that I don't like people think about account based marketing at the highest level. Unfortunately, it's like clearly associated with like targeted advertising. And then once people get over that hurdle of, oh, it's, it's more than targeted advertising. It's actually like a whole strategy that like, it's marketing and sales coming together, and then they think it's like this really really complex technology, like that you have to integrate everything, and you like it's a seventeen thousand. It's not seventeen thousand. It's a seventeen month project to even get to the point where you have the appropriate like technological infrastructure to execute ABM. And what I am trying to help people recognize, and it sounds corny and cheesy, but like ABM is not a strategy. It is a mindset. It is just simply. I have my named accounts. I know who they are. I can, I can literally search the individual that is the buyer that I need to get. How do I, as a marketer, equip my sales team and actually then run programs that ensure we get in front of that person with a message that is relevant for them? I don't care if that is an ad. I don't care if that is a podcast. I don't care if it's a blog. I don't care what the tactic is. But what we recognize is we know who the people are now let's have the appropriate mindset to get a little bit scrappy and figure out how to get
1: in front of them so So you're you're not saying that you need to go out and buy that that like super expensive uh account-based marketing software before you even get started on your program it's uh it's not what you're recommending no and actually this is a formal (laughs) recommendation from when i was
0: doing account-based programs we recommend that you start your account based program without when I was when I was agency side we recommend you start your account based program without any technology because you need to foster the alignment and the actual philosophy first and then once you've proven a model then you go by the technology that then actually accelerates that model that you've proven out so again
2: how how much you have to segment your your accounts can you build a campaign or a program for 100 at a time? Or how focused do you actually have to get?
0: So I'm going to put on my consultant hat. <laughs> and the standard answer is it depends.
2: Of course.
0: So <laughs> I'll, I'll give you an example sure. of what we're doing at Sales Assembly. So I have really three salespeople at Sales Assembly. Um, one of them is a, is a strategic AE that is entirely focused on memberships. Another is really our head of partnerships. So when we have sponsors or partners that want to sponsor our community, like she sells those and we have our CRO who is Matt Green, who's probably the most well known who kind of floats between the two and manages the, those two individuals, but is also helping to co-sell those deals. So when I look at it, Matt is doing some of his own prospecting, but he's primarily like helping to manage and, and accelerate the pipeline. Tanner, who is our strategic AE, is doing most of his own prospecting and deal setting and closing those deals. And then Jenna is doing a lot of her own prospecting and is also then like closing the deals and managing those relationships. So when I look at sponsorship opportunities with Jenna, we're typically selling to a marketing audience. So I, as a marketer, am the peer. So what I'm doing with Jenna is figuring out I have my own separate podcast that is separate from my day job. One of the plays that we talked about is how do we look at target sponsors? We've got a list of 40 because sponsors are larger deals and there's fewer sponsor opportunities than there are member opportunities. So we have 40 target accounts for sponsors. How do I then identify which sponsors are hiring and invite them onto my podcast so that I, Mason Cosby, can build a one to one relationship with the decision makers that would buy a sponsorship opportunity from Sales Assembly? From there, they then become a part of my LinkedIn content streams. They engage my content. And I can say to them hey think after like three months hey thank you so much for engaging with my content i loved our podcast episode i also loved getting to help place somebody in your organization for free so i'm placing a mason cosby evangelist and advocate in their organization and then the decision maker likes me as well personally because i helped hire talent for them and then i i can say something to the extent of we actually have a sponsorship opportunity for sales assembly that helps marketing leaders that sell sales tech or a sales platform of some kind, access to about 7,000 sellers across 200 B2B tech companies. I know you're super well connected in this space. If you know anybody that would be interested in something like that, I'd love to connect them with our head of partnerships. What typically will then happen is to be like, I need that. I'm like, (laughs) oh, awesome. I'll connect you. Or another thing that's happened is people have come to me and said, I'd love to co-market with you. Like that's awesome. Let me get you connected to our head of partnerships. So that's actually been a way that we're sourcing new opportunities. So one is more strategic and longer tail. The other is opportunistic. When somebody comes to me and says, I'd like to co-market with you, I route them towards our head of partnerships. And then when they get to the part in which we're actually planning out what we would do together, I come in as essentially as a solutions engineer and build out a co-marketing plan with them in that call and give them very tangible tactical release dates of when we would do things with them. And then they need to sign the deal in time so we can actually meet the obligations that we set in the sales process. So that's partnerships. On the sales side of things, we sell to B2B tech. <laughs> there are 20,000 B2B tech companies. Mm. So the first thing that I did is I created what is called a total relevant market. And I said, who are the companies that we wanna to sell to in the next three to five years? That came back with a list of about 3000 accounts. So then what we're doing is we're actually pulling specific target account lists out of a total relevant market to run specific campaigns and plays towards. So for example, our sales team hosts a monthly executive dinner across the US. So what we did is we pulled out the list of all the different cities that we're going to this year and we have a connection sequence on LinkedIn in which my seller can go and connect with all the different VPs and CROs in all the different cities out of our total relevant market. And then again, we're creating content on a daily basis that is highly relevant and highly tactical for sales leaders on how they can equip and upskill their team, which means that they're getting daily content from us. So then when we do outreach to invite them to a dinner to meet in person, they're not like, who are you? They're like, I'd love to meet you in person.
1: Yeah.
0: And as a result, we've actually seen an increase in our dinners. So that, that's just one tangible tactical play. But again, for partnerships, the high ACV, very few opportunities. We have a list of 40. For memberships, I have a list of 3,000 accounts in which I'm pulling very specific segmented lists for specific campaigns and plays.
1: Wow. So you're doing like, so a target list, but like 3,000 accounts seems kind of counterintuitive, but the way you're describing it actually does make a lot of sense. So the problem I have with, the way that most people build
0: a target account list is they will start with a fresh list every time. And as a result, you don't get the compounding effect of brand awareness. So because we've segmented our list out of 20,000 potential accounts that exist today, not to mention again, we're in B2B tech. How many startups are going to, well, maybe not this year. There's a lot of startups though, that just like come out of nowhere. But we've said these are the 3000 accounts that we're going to focus on for the next three to five years with the in- expected intent that we would convert 20% of them. We're a company that has 200 B2B tech clients. So if we convert 20% of 3000, that is 600 accounts. Again, that's with a five-year time horizon. Yeah. So out of that, I'm then constantly pulling specific lists but because we're pulling out of the same larger list and we're kind of doing an always on marketing program towards them, that is like awareness level content. When I then do the middle of funnel, bottom of funnel type plays, they know that we exist. And because again, I'm being scrappy about it. I don't have the intent data. I don't have the ability to do this like incredible attribution model. Like I've got HubSpot and I've got like a LinkedIn sequencer. That's those are the, that's the tech sector I've got right now. So because of that, because we have a very narrow, I mean, 3,000 accounts. It's not super narrow, but like it's it's smaller than going and pulling a list out of 20,000 every single time. We mm-hmm. get that compounding effect of they're aware of us. They've been invited to something before. They feel special. They feel valued. And that over time, they'll know who we are and what we do.
2: Do you treat top tier accounts differently? I mean, you already described a pretty intricate process, right? You're nurturing them a lot over time, do you do do a different process for different tiered accounts?
0: It's a great question. So the way in which we've thought through this from a tiering perspective, um, in-person especially, is kind of top tier. So like we hosted an event two weeks ago called Remix. It was a day, half day kind of conference thing. We had five sessions. We invited 150 CROs. It was primarily existing members. But in addition to that, we had about 20 prospects that came to that event that saw what it was like to be a part of the sales assembly community. So we invited only the top tier potential customers to that. And then for our dinners, again, we are prioritizing VPs and CROs for our in-person dinners in the cities. And again, we're actually creating these in-person dinners in cities where we know we have a large number of potential target accounts. So we're not going to like, I'll be blunt, there's not one in indianapolis which kind of makes me sad but we have one next week in austin we just had one in san francisco we just had another one in salt lake city so like where there are large groupings of v2b tech companies that's where we're hosting our dinners now the other play that's been interesting a lot of sales leaders are now encouraging their teams to go back in person so i'm not gonna say who but there was a a sales leader that's a vp of sales that said we now have created allocated budget on a monthly basis for our sellers and myself to go visit potential customers in person so now what i'm doing with him is i'm actually showing him the list of all the upcoming dinners and i'm saying hey we're going to have dinners in these cities on these dates i know that you're traveling in person to go to these dinner or to go visit your customers Would it ever make sense for you to line up a trip to go visit a potential customer with one of our dinners so that you can potentially prospect at our dinners? And I'm making it what's valuable for them. So, again, those are top tier customers where we're doing that
1: level of detailed research. Gotcha. And so it sounds like your whole team is pretty on board, especially with you kind of leading the charge when it comes to all things ABM. But um, I've been a part of, at least from uh, maybe a consultancy perspective, and heard uh, of plenty of situations where where sales and marketing is not nearly as uh, buddy buddy as kind of how you're describing it. Uh, examples include like not wanting marketing to nurture contacts because sales is it doesn't want them to mess with things. Um, maybe at that point, it's almost too hard to unravel, but how do you, how do you go about executing ABM campaigns if the sales team is of that mindset?
0: Yeah, I think one, we lead with empathy and we recognize why sales teams don't actually want marketing's help. Mm. And again, I've said this a lot recently, but I'm going to keep saying it, that marketing and sales are not aligned because marketing has promised this concept of pipeline and we keep delivering follower count so we're going to send messages towards our target accounts that will not resonate and again when we think about the ways in which people interact psychologically we respond based on the asks that are presented to us so again Mm -hmm. from a sales perspective instead of saying hey can you schedule a call and we can talk about how you can buy our product i'm saying to sales hey instead of doing that ask why don't you ask them to register for our webinar like of course of Course they're not gonna be on board because they only get so many asks as they're building trust. And I'm asking sales to expend their relational equity that they've been building to get a webinar registrant <laughs> over an in-pipeline opportunity. So that's how sales is viewing it. So we need to leave with empathy and say, you know, I get it. Like you really value these accounts because the piece is we sales is tied specifically to close one deals in a way that is different than marketing. Like I have a, a bonus that is tied to if we actually hit our revenue goals. But the vast majority of my compensation is not tied up in whether or not we hit our revenue goals. Whereas for many sellers, they're seeing 75% to 50%, sometimes 100% of their compensation is tied to whether or not they hit the goal. So of course they're gonna be more protective of it. It's not just, I need a deal, but it's I need to be able to provide for my family. So again, I think that personally as a marketer that started in a straight commission sales job, like I have yeah. that empathy because I've been there. Don't know that every marketer has. So I think it's leading with empathy and saying, hey, I get it. Like, I'm not just asking, can I help you nurture a deal? I'm asking, can you trust me with your paycheck? When you yeah. come at it from that perspective and say, I actually want to help you increase your, like I want to help you increase your income. Like I want to help you. and. From there, it then changes the conversation a little bit. The other piece, in this is counterintuitive, you either want to go to the rep that is crushing it and has the ability to take a risk, or you want to go to the rep that's on a PIP. Because if they're on a PIP, screw it. Like, it, <laughs> What's the worst that can happen? And if they're crushing it, and you come to them and saying, hey, I would like to try some experience with you to see if I can further increase your income. They're like, I've already hit all my goals. Might as well, like, try something new. So, again, don't go towards those middle reps because they're the ones that are going to be the most tightly wound because they're not crushing it. Mm-hmm. But they're only two deals away from being on a pip. Gotcha. So, again, like, you, you find the reps that are on the outliers.
1: And would you ever say that, like... So in that scenario, like you're trying to drive them to do like actions that are maybe not in their immediate incentives, would you ever recommend just like changing their incentives and say, Hey, you get a spiff essentially, uh, if you, or like a prize, essentially, if you, you know, drive 15 webinar registrants, or do you, do you do it more of like the like, like like you just said, where hey, let's test something out, uh, may work, may not work. Here's the long term potential for you. Like, what are your thoughts on just like the immediate incentivization of just like paying them to do things that uh, marketing wants them to do? What are your thoughts there?
0: Admittedly, like this is gonna sound awful. I've never had that thought. It's a really good thought, but like, let me know like, how it goes. Yeah, <laughs> I just well, I I just personally. Like, especially right now, I know marketing budgets are even tighter. So like, I love that idea in theory, but mm-hmm. as a, let's, let's take it, for example, um, you know, there's a larger organization. They're an ABM manager that's specifically tied to helping their sales team. They would then have to go divide at their manager, divide at their manager, divide their manager to get the budget, to do a spiff, At which mm-hmm. point they're probably going to say, that's a great idea. But like, if we do it for a few reps, we need to do it for all reps so that's where i'm in the camp of like it, i think it's genuinely a great idea and if somebody would run with it fantastic i just think it's like I, I love the todd Capone said this a couple weeks ago and it's such a basic phrase but like the juice is not worth the squeeze at that point like mm-hmm. the amount of layers of approval that you need to go through to get even a thousand dollar spiff it's just probably not going to happen unless you get buy-in from the sales leader and they have a culture in which spiffs are fairly common So again, that's, that's one way to think about it, but it's actually not going to the marketing leadership. It's going to the sales leadership and saying, Hey, we want to do this. Can you help us? So that's one thing. The other thing is like the reason I like staying within the existing confines of the comp structure is you don't have to go to get any new layers of approval for how we go about this. Like it's within the existing comp structure. What we're saying is we're gonna get more targeted and more specific. So Those are my thoughts. What I actually find is more sales leaders either say one of two things. They either say, like, we're not going to touch our reps, we're going to let them do their job, like you go do your job. Or they're like, well, if we do it for one person, we should do it for everybody. Again, neither approach works because we have to prove a model first. So, again, that's why I'm in the camp of do it with one, maybe two. Essentially, you then build an internal case study to showcase the impact that has been accomplished. And then you can actually go buy for more budget to double down on an account-based program.
2: I love how grassroots that is, grassroots and balanced. Question, how long have you been at Sales Assembly now? Three months. Okay, okay. I just saw your post about your 30, 60, 90 day review with Sales Assembly what was your mindset in developing something like that? You know, was this your idea? I want to do this, do my 90 day cleanup and orient myself, or did that come from somewhere else?
0: Yeah. So there's, there's two answers to this. Cause one, I did a 30, 60, 90 in the interview process. And that actually came from me um, with the express intent that if I'm, cause I'll, I'll be blunt. Like I really liked what I did at gravity. Like I was in this weird hybrid marketing and sales role. So like I was, essentially getting to do like evangelism and thought leadership on account based marketing and then selling deals. And like, I worked at a global agency that was the world's most word of B2B agency. Like it was kind of cool. I'm not going <laughs> to lie, but I also, long story short, there's a lot of travel with that that started to pop up and I'm expecting my first child in August. So I wanted to a, a, a transition into a job where I could focus more on building marketing programs than doing the travel. So that was just the, the rationale there. But again, like, as I looked at making a job transition, I wasn't like in a toxic work environment. I wasn't in any kind of situation where I was like, I have to get out now. Like I wanted to be sure that when I left, I left very strategically. So I built a 30, 60, 90. So that when I presented this plan, if they said, we don't like this plan, we don't think this is the right play, then I could like, we can have a dialogue around it. But at the end of the day, like, and I hate to say this bluntly, like, I'm coming in because I have clear convictions of these are the right place to be doing in our current economic environment. It's like, if we're not going to do this, there's no harm, no foul in it. But like I'm going to take my skill set somewhere else where we can be aligned on this program, because that's where I'm going to make you successful and then I will be successful. So I built that in the interview process to ensure that we were all aligned from the get from there, the retroactive. I wasn't like somebody brought it up and like, I was like, Oh yeah, we should like kind of knew Every month I do a review with our executive team of like, here's what we've accomplished. This is what we're doing this month. This is where we are towards our goals. So like, it was just that meeting, but like half an hour longer. And instead of reviewing the past month, we reviewed the past three months. And then additionally, like I mentioned, then I'm expecting my first in August. So part of that conversation was like, also then prioritizing the next two months because I will then be on paternity leave for a month. And, you know, we gotta figure out what we're gonna do after that, so. yeah. I, it wasn't like, oh, we got to like figure out what you're doing. It was more of a mutually agreed upon. We should review to figure out what's working and what's not, and then where to double down. And what we found is at the highest level, things are in the right direction. But what we found is that we're really struggling in the social selling to actual pipeline conversion. So mm. we're doing a lot of top of funnel content. We're seeing an increase in actual inbound. We went from one a month to like six and a half a month. Over the, over the quarter, which is like solid. It's not where I wanna be, it's not the in-state, but like in three months to have 13 inbounds versus past month or past quarters would be like three. It's good, it's right, we're, it's on track. <laughs> but we can do a lot more if we were actually strategic in the ways in which we outbounded. So now we've got some clear goals of how we're gonna process, build a process around strategic outbounding based off of social engagement with right fit customers. So like that that retro helped us identify we're great right on top of funnel like middle of funnel is getting there but bottom of funnel is struggling so we need some programs and some processes around the bottom of funnel.
2: Yeah, I love that. I'm trying to think of, you know, this podcast is for future and current um startup executives. So if I was going into my interview and I wanted to make this 30 60 90 can you just give me some guidance on kind of what do I actually need to look at to be able to know, oh, my top of funnel is great. My bottom is bad, et cetera. And kind of do those diagnoses like you did.
0: It's a great question. Um, I didn't build it into the last interview. So given that I was coming from a consulting agency, I essentially like my interview processes with all these people were just discovery calls. Like I was mm-hmm. figuring out all the problems that they were experiencing because I also I view any job posting as somebody just simply saying, I have a challenge and I need somebody to solve it. Like it's the clear sign of intent that there's a true problem. So again, I could look at the job description, but let's be blunt. Like most job descriptions, and I hate to say this bluntly, (laughs) but like until you're in a larger corporate environment, most job descriptions don't actually accurately summarize the challenge because you have people that recognize there's a problem and they don't know how to solve it. So they build a job description with what they think are the solutions. So don't say that to, especially in a startup environment though, like, none of my executive leaders have been in marketing and that's not a problem, but, but like, that's just not their skill set. That's why they're hiring me. So instead of looking directly at the job description that they put together for a role, like I just asked what are the challenges. And then through that, the other things that I had the blessing of doing, I'm just fairly connected in the B2B tech space now after being active on LinkedIn. So I actually was able to interview one of their customers. That was a CRO that had been with them for the past five years. And it brought them into three separate organizations over that five year time frame. So I just had 45 minutes with her and I just asked her a ton of questions and she gave me a ton of ideas. So in the interview process, I actually outlined, like for example, Sales Simply did not have a formal referral program. So I said, I interviewed X person. She has brought you into three separate organizations in five years. She has never once been asked for a referral and you have never actively reached out to her when she makes a job transition. We should have a referral program, and we should have a champion tracking program. And then I've showcased the data that like a CRO moves every eighteen to twenty-two months. So if we had a hundred percent success rate in retention, and then actually selling to a cr that had previously used us, we could double size of our business in two years. That is not actually the reality. We will not have a hundred percent success rate, but it demonstrates the impact of just doing that one simple tactic. So again, those were some of the things of like. That would not be a formal demand generation program Mm -hmm. but it's like we should be doing referrals and champion tracking like those are two things that will generate quick and immediate pipeline because the other thing that i've been saying a lot is like nobody cares what marketing is doing as long as the pipeline is full so the goal for every marketer in the first 90 days should be to generate quick pipeline that keeps your sales team happy because then you actually get the breathing room to go build brand which is where you get the long tail impact. But again, like you have to have pipeline to then get the Liberty to go build a brand.
2: I love that. One thing that I've known that I've I've heard you say is um, you've talked a lot about a lot about numbers, a lot about success, et cetera. That tells me that you're probably really good at measuring the work that you and your team do. So, um, can you give any tips to how do I measure, right? I'm a marketing leader. Um, yeah, I'm tracking my success, but you just have it off the bat. What, where, what can I do? How can I measure?
0: Um, I look at the, okay, so two things. One, I, through the program, to help illustrate it to our executive team, I actually built out a funnel That is, these are the different tactics that we're doing at each stage of the funnel. Be very clear. And I said this to our executive team. No one will actually go through each stage of these funnels. But it's helpful to understand what is the intent behind the things that we're doing and actually moving someone through their buyer's journey. I don't think it will ever be perfect, but that's the goal. And then from there, it's not sexy, but it's practical. I have a weekly marketing scorecard that I built myself that then is the specific metrics that then tie into each one of those tactics across the funnel. So I look at it through the lens of we need six discovery calls on a weekly basis to hit our growth goals for the year. If all of our conversion metrics stayed the same, where are those coming from? I think two should come from referrals. I think one should come from champion tracking. And then we should be able to get three through inbounds and outbounds. So how do I then back out of that? And from there we're actually then able to look at okay do we send out enough outbound sequences to then get the conversion metrics to hit two to three meetings again i kind of look at inbounds and some people are going to love me some people are going to hate me when you do the right things inbounds will come and you can just look at pipeline generated through inbounds but i can't with the technology that i have i can't tell you exactly like when somebody's going to come inbound i just know if we do enough of the right things in front of the right people they will come inbound at some point That is just all I know. So I then look at it through the lens of again, I can control outbound. And I know that we will likely get eight inbounds this month. Don't know who, don't know where, but we'll get there. And then you just back out. So like I'm tracking specific follower count of our executives because we're spending a lot of time creating content and thought leadership content for them. So I'm not tracking the engagement that they're getting and the followers that they're getting then I'm not actually seeing is the content we're creating working. I don't need to know the specific individual piece of content, but what I can see potentially, because I'm measuring it every week, did we create a post that truly went viral that relates back to our product and we gained 500 followers on a single executive because of it? Great. What was good about that one post and how do I make more of that? So again, it's tying all of the tactics into what is the intent of this tactic? What is the goal in advancing someone through their buyer's journey? And then having a clear and tangible metric to then measure on that on a weekly basis. And then looking at what are the goals and where do I expect us to actually be able to achieve these goals? And how do I then back out of my goals to get the holistic funnel?
2: So good, so tactical. No, I really appreciate that. Thanks for walking through
1: it. Of course. One of the things that I was curious was, uh, so for Sales Assembly, you, you mentioned CROs, you mentioned um, a lot of different personas. From what I understand, from what you've said, you've never been a CRO. So how did you find yourself like getting into the mind of the people uh, and the personas that you're trying to walk through when you were just getting started at Sales Assembly? Uh, I'm curious, like, what do you think about even is that is that the first step? Is that like within that 30 day plan for you? Or was that something that maybe you didn't even do because you had some experience in the sales and marketing industry, but yeah, I'm just curious on your thoughts on like getting into the mind of your personas. Is that something that is even important um, with kind of the strategies that you guys are trying to do? No, it's a great question. And
0: admittedly, it wasn't as large of a priority for me because as I, the interesting piece when you come from selling abm programs on a global scale i spoke with a lot of cmo cro combos Mm -hmm. so like i being a marketer happened to have sat in a marketing sales seat selling account-based marketing programs for nine months prior to stepping into this role so like the the challenges that sellers are facing and CROs are facing were the things that i was addressing the, the interesting piece is they were taking it from the lens of we should outsource our account-based marketing program to an agency now a sales assembly it's we should upskill our team so the way in which they're addressing the solution is different but the problem is typically the same we have a skill gap we need to address the skill gap somehow could be an agency could be upskilling our team with learning and development but the core is a skill gap so there's that piece the other thing is because i i mean i i legitimately am, People think I'm crazy for this. I think I had upwards of 40 referrals to work at Sales Assembly. Like I I activated my network and sent everybody after their executive team, many of whom were either sales consultants um, like Sam McKenna and I have somehow a relationship outside of Sales Assembly, which is one of the greatest things for my life. She's incredible. But like I, I've talked with Sam McKenna on a number of occasions. I've talked with Todd Capone. I've talked with another woman named Rebecca Grimes that is a CRO. So I didn't do necessarily like detailed customer research around CROs, where I did actually do some research. Uh, We had a VP of product that started about a month before me and had done a number of customer interviews, not with CROs, but with enablement practitioners, because they're typically the one that own the actual product that is sales assembly. So let's do a lot of gong calls. And then I started to Uh, just connect with people that were in the enablement function and just reading their content. So between Gong calls plus just being well-connected in the space and essentially having done customer interviews before I even started, like between all of those things, I felt I had a good grasp. Now, I will say one other thing. For the strategy that I'm executing, and it's going to be controversial, and I'm sorry, I don't actually think it was important for me to do that. Until what we ended up doing, we did a messaging project in my first 90 days. And I, because of my background story, ran certified guide. We had done some messaging and I, it it just didn't hit where we needed it to. It was like a feature dump and it didn't actually do the core of what the customer cared about. So when I ended up personally revamping our messaging that's currently active on the website, I did go do some quick customer research, but for the program that I intended to build, I don't need, I don't need to know anything. And that sounds crazy, (laughs) but what we're doing is we're setting up podcast tours with our subject matter experts. We're creating content where they are the initial thought leader. And I take those transcripts and I repurpose that into blog content. I repurpose that into LinkedIn content. And I take the video, I chop it up into clips. I repurpose their audio for our own podcast. And then all of that fuels the rest of our content strategy. I don't need to know anything. I just need to have SMEs that go and create content. And what that's actually turned into yes. is I don't put my own biases in it. It is truly executive leadership content, which is super valuable because I I'm just there to organize and make sure that we're maintaining the tone and voice of sales assembly versus putting in my own thoughts and opinions. Cause my thoughts and opinions don't matter. I'm the marketer. I'm not the seller. Gotcha. I love it. Transitioning
2: out of your, you know, nine to five or 60 hours a week, whatever it is, I've noticed that you seem very into professional communities. Um, It's all over your LinkedIn. I'm just hoping that you can maybe share a couple that you are a part of. And maybe if I'm an early career professional, what professional communities can I look into?
0: Yeah. So for starters, LinkedIn, Um, (laughs) if you are not active on LinkedIn, like that is, and I, I don't exaggerate this. I mean, it's completely changed my life. I mean, we, sure. we talked about this, but, like, to be very tangible and tactical, four and a half years ago, I thought I was going to be a youth pastor. Yeah. And it's because of the community on LinkedIn that I'm now here. Yeah. So like, that's not a long time. <laughs> so, like, it's, that's the number one. Sure. And what I, what I found is those that are most active on LinkedIn are then pretty public with the communities that they're a part of. So, if you end up finding someone that you really resonate with, I'd actually go figure out what communities are they a part of because like everybody that's really active on LinkedIn I'm finding is a part of a community just to be very blunt. The challenge is there's like a hundred thousand communities now. So again, like I look at LinkedIn as the macro community where you find kind of your tribe. And then based off of that tribe, you then look at what micro communities are they in and you go join those communities. So that's like a tactical way to find uh, for me, it's peak. So peak is a marketing community. That's, hosted by Sangram Verge and, and Judd. And I really love Peak. Um, and then additionally, like Sales Assembly is sold to companies, but it is a community. And I will be, be blunt in the sense of like the community within Sales Assembly is actually really, really solid. They just have, and again, I it is a perk that I work here because I now get access to that community that I've never had. So I really love that. And then the final thought is I've actually, separate from Peak and separate from Sales Assembly, I have a group of seven solo or small team marketers. I don't know how I got invited, but I got invited to this small group of literally seven people. And man, I'm the dumbest person on the call and I love it. It is my favorite call that I join every other week. And we just talk about what we're doing right now and challenges of what we're facing and what we're learning and again there's no paywall there's no any like you can find those people and that's i think the and again we've been doing it for about two months so we'll see what's been the most fruitful but just from an early indication perspective it's people that are in a similar like career stage to me they're all smarter than me they're all been doing it for longer than i have but they're in a similar career stage and it's essentially just like a bunch of people stumbling forward together, and man, I think that those would be my ride or dies for like the next fifteen years. Like, I I really love that group.
2: You so, said that you're the dumbest one on the call, and I don't believe you. But I am curious if you if someone does feel like the dumbest person on the call, how do you contribute?
0: It's a great question. Um, one recognize like how much of a blessing it is to be the dumbest person on the call because you're only going to learn. So like I w- I'm like. I view it as such a blessing because clearly I'm a verbose person. That one call, I am the most quiet I am in the entire week because I'm just in awe of the things that I'm learning. It's like recognizing that. And then like, I know like really weird, very specifically niche tactical things. So for example, like if you go look up HubSpot ABM, like the blog that I wrote that has all of the like tutorials and essentially like, how do you break HubSpot? to be the best ABM tool, like I wrote that. So like, I know a ton about how to do specifically like really weird niche things within HubSpot that accomplish an account-based strategy. So like, that's my lane is like really weird, tactical account-based marketing (laughs) stuff. So when somebody needs help with that, or like, how do you identify who our market should be? Like I'm good at targeting and I'm good at like really weird, tactical HubSpot, ABM stuff. That comes up a lot, especially in the startup space. So many startups are using HubSpot. Like I can then speak to the practical ways in which you use a tool. So I like, I know what my lane is and I stick to my lane pretty well. And then the other thing is I'm just a really avid networker. So the value that I bring is I'm a connector. Mm -hmm. So like one guy that on the call earlier this week, it was actually yesterday, uh, he was like, yeah, we had like LinkedIn Live. We had like 1,500 people show up. And I was like, that's incredible. And everybody was like, yeah, like I'm on this LinkedIn panel. I was like, the LinkedIn panel is neat. Anyway, I'm on this LinkedIn panel. That's like trying to figure out how to make product improvements. So I'd love to hear your testimony of like how you use LinkedIn Live. It's like, oh, if you need more testimonies, I know a guy that runs a business that hosted a LinkedIn Live two weeks ago that had 5,000 attendees. Can I make an intro? So again, the value that I bring is I just network a ton. So I am a connector and then I know like really weird, oddly specific things.
2: Can I take you on my trivia team?
0: <laughs> um <laughs> nobody know there's no B2B tech trivia, <laughs> but if there was, I'd crush it. <laughs>
2: <laughs> that doesn't feel out of out of the realm of possibility though. <laughs> All right. I want to be... wants to
0: host it, I'll be there.
2: I love it. I love it. Uh, I want to talk about your podcast really quickly before we let you go. Um, you are the host of a podcast called the marketing ladder, and I just want you to maybe tell us what it is. Give it a quick shout out who you have on, et
0: cetera. So really long story short, um, it's a podcast about marketing careers and essentially that guy, TC Jennings, he got LinkedIn live and he made a post almost two years ago. At this point, I was like, Hey, who would want to do a LinkedIn live with me? And I was like, I'll do it. So he and I started like playing a podcast together and he was like, wow, this is gonna be really time consuming. So like, I'm out. And mm-hmm. so then I had a podcast um, <laughs> and we didn't have a topic. We had seven guests lined up, including like James Carberry, and Verge, a guy named Trey Shineman at the CMO. It's like, we had really high up executives lined up for a podcast that had no name and no topic and no title. <laughs> so like, it was like, all right. So what I ended up doing is thinking about myself through the lens of I'm a young marketer. That's got, hopefully a long career i am the audience of someone that's trying to figure out how to build a marketing career and when i looked at podcasts there were two other podcasts that were focused specifically on how to build a career in marketing and neither one of them were posting anything consistently they both weren't very good (laughs) so i thought okay i'll be the guy that builds a podcast around marketing careers and then what it turned into is I realized, oh, there are people that are hiring, so I can interview them on how they built their career. So what it turned into is kind of the shtick of get career advice from your potential future boss. So I interview people that walk through their career progression, and then they plug the roles that they're hiring for. So now, after like 120-some-odd episodes, we've actually placed like 30 people in jobs, which has been like super rewarding and super fun. Um. So that's, that's the podcast in a nutshell. And like, I, I was reading this book by Donald Miller. It's called a Hero on a Mission because it sounds really altruistic. And like, it sounds like I interview people, like there's no sponsors, like there's no nothing. It's just like me in a StreamYard account and a speaker account. And I just like live stream these things. But like the selfish reason behind it, again, I got laid off. It's only two and a half, three years ago at this point. So now, I know everybody that's hiring. So if I ever needed a job, I know who to call. And yes, I can extend that to my network, and I help a ton of people land jobs. But, like, it has been a career safety net. And that's actually how I got the job at Sales Assembly.
1: I interviewed my potential future boss, and he became my future boss. Super cool. Super cool. Was, the, was the timeline on that, like, this was before you even like really were interested in the job or was that kind of like, Hey, I'm thinking about this job. Let yeah. me get him on the interview, uh, to do a little bit of research first. So I long story
0: short, I ended up lining up a bunch of guests and then, and I just kind of realized as we were looking, I was at gravity. Still, we were looking at what the future w- were, was going to hold. I was like, man, I'm going to like never be at home. And I really love my home. So I'd already lined up that interview. And then I messaged him and I was like, hey, I was looking at the job description and I think I'd actually be a good fit. Could we hop on a call? And he was like, yeah, let's do it. So like we walked through it. And I, by the end of the call, and, I said, and I, I've never said this for another job, I said, I literally think I am the perfect candidate for this role. He goes, should we still do the podcast interview? And <laughs> I, in some stupid craziness said, well, I want to be fair to you. You're not the only option I'm looking at. And I think it's only fair that this." And I promote the role like I had intended. So I am actively
1: interviewing for the role that we promote while I'm interviewing him. <laughs> You're like, it is... I, I want competition. I want to, to see who, who else is out there to compete. I don't know why I did it. Luckily, it panned <laughs> out. Like, I, like
0: it, but it was not it was not a most well thought out thing to like box it out. But anyway, so yeah, so that's actually episode 99 of the podcast is my interview with him. It was a great episode.
1: And I think you were saying, uh, while we were talking, when you're getting in here, um, your favorite episode of the podcast to date, episode 100, correct? I'm going to give two answers because one sounds
0: awful. <laughs> like, so episode 100 is me and my wife talking about my own career path. Because, again, if, if we look at it through the journey of four and a half years, like one be youth pastor, print addict executive, sales, like marketing director at a 10 fintech company like agency world's most awarded agency and now like this learning and dev- like it's just weird it doesn't make <laughs> any sense because like i've spoken at conferences to like 20 30 year veterans on an industry that i've been in for like three years it does not make any sense but like my wife was gracious enough to interview me and to like yeah. talk through that. So that was a, that was a fun episode in the sense of like, I aired out a lot of dirty laundry and like, cause there are things that, that happened in my career that were really rough. Like leaving that FinTech company, if you go listen to the episode, like it, it was hard. Um, and I'm not proud of everything that I did when I left, but like I aired it out so that like people can understand it. It's not a perfect journey. Um, yeah. The other episode though, that is like genuinely my favorite to date, uh, episode 50, I interviewed Chris Walker, kind of at the height of the Refine oh, wow. Labs. Like, how do you build a, a a culture of innovation? And like my greatest claim to fame for the Marketing Ladder podcast is Chris Walker has said that that is one of his top three favorite episodes that he's ever done. Oh, wow. Um, nice. So like that, and <laughs> that includes like across every like revenue vitals and state of demand gen. So like yeah. that episode, I'm really proud of because I think. At that point, I had listened to 200 episodes of The State of Demand Gen. So, like, I feel like I knew Chris pretty well. I had shown up on Demand Gen Lives. Like, he and I, I don't think he knew me a ton, but, like, he knew I existed. And I think he was just kind of expecting it to be this, like, weird little marketing careers podcast. And, like, I actually just really (laughs) questioned him in a way I don't think other people have questioned him. And, like, it ended up getting really good answers out of him that he had not yet shared publicly. So, like, it was just really, it was a fun interview. It's challenging
1: i was scared but it was great yeah we'll, we'll link both of those episodes in the description but yeah i imagine it is he hopping on and you saying on october of 2019 you were <laughs> at this restaurant what did you think uh, that level <laughs> of detail after 200 uh, something episodes of listening to him so yeah that sounds sounds amazing a couple of questions i want to um hear from you on before we, we sort of wrap up today is um was the podcast really how you started to grow your personal brand on LinkedIn? Um, And then what are some other steps for people if they're not active on LinkedIn? You're saying this has changed your life. What are some of the steps that people can take uh, to become active? So kind of a a two-part question there.
0: Yeah, great question. So for starters, my, my growth on LinkedIn was a scrappy ABM strategy. So like I mentioned at Mojo, my boss came to me and said, hey, we need to build an ABM program. So I looked at the channels I had available and recognized a lot of my buyers are on LinkedIn and they're creating content there. So why don't I go connect with all my target accounts and then create content and comment on their posts and like show up and just be someone that, that's a visible face. Um, that strategy worked stupidly effectively. Like it, that is the reason I think I was able to sell like 1.7 million in that six month time frame when I was in that sales role.
1: Yeah
0: because people knew who I was after having built a LinkedIn presence for a year and a half. Like that was not a short tail thing, but again, like I, I, so the thing that I always tell people is you have hundred connection requests on a weekly basis, use all of them. Because (laughs) when you started on LinkedIn, what you probably did is you connected with your family, you connected with your friends, you connected with people you graduated from college from or college with. My mom is not buying B2B tech sales (laughs) enablement content. Like she's just not, it's never gonna happen. She loves me. She will like my posts. She's never gonna buy my stuff. And the reality is her network probably isn't either. Cause again, she was a 30 year um, pharmaceutical sales rep. So all of her network is pharmaceutical sales. My dad is a landscape architect. So there's maybe there. There's maybe, like that's, that's it's gonna, it's gonna be very hit or miss. So instead, if I connect with my target accounts that are active on the platform, I then proactively build my followers. So they are actually people that would engage with my content. And the other thing that I do that's selfish is I learn from them because I've now curated my feed in such a way that it's actually people that are really smart and way smarter than me talking about the things that they are learning and doing. It's great. So that's kind of the first step is go intentionally build your network by sending out connection requests. And again, I've tested it with, should I do a message? Should I not? What I found is that no message works better. And mm-hmm. when you send out the first hundred, you'll probably get 20 that accept. When you send out the next hundred, you'll probably get 25 that accept. And over time, there was a point where I, I sent out a hundred connection requests and then I made a post that just like super landed. And I made a couple of comments that super landed. And I got like 500 new connections in a day. So like oh, wow. eventually there's this compounding effect because- now I have it's like 16,000 some odd followers. That number is social proof that I'm real and that I'm valuable. <laughs> yeah. Whereas when I had 100 followers, like you are valuable intrinsically. Like that's not what I'm saying. But as far as the content you create, it may not be valuable if you only have 100 followers. So again from that perspective, you end up getting more and more connections and you have this compounding effect. Um the podcast certainly helps, but it's a heavy lift. And I I want to be clear, like the most engaged people are my podcast guests, but that was a really, really heavy lift. So my recommendation, instead of doing a podcast, unless you just want to make the weekly commitment, which I am all for, I, I have done it for the past almost two years. It's been incredible. Like just hopping on 30 minute calls with people. And again, some people will not make time for you. That's totally fine. But just saying, Hey, I'm young in my career. I'm really looking to learn and grow from leaders like you. I know that you have no reason to give me 30 minutes, but would you? And if that doesn't work, yep. then go build a podcast. Cause everybody says yes to building a, <laughs> <that> a podcast. <laughs> Not kidding. I, like um, I gave this advice to, to another guy that was a teacher transitioning into B2B tech and he interviewed 60 people in 30 days. And he had no sales experience and he got 20 offers because of the relationships he, that he built through a podcast. He's he to pay more than I was. I was really ticked about it, honestly. <laughs> um, but from that perspective, like that's the value of a podcast. Cause I mean, I mean I'll, I'll be really blunt. I don't know everybody that asks me on a podcast, but they say, Hey, do you want to come join a podcast? I typically say yes. And I, I give whatever time is needed. So yeah. those are, those are some thoughts on how to get started on LinkedIn.
1: Yeah. Well, one of the, the last questions that we like to to do here is um, sort of a similar idea of like progression, essentially. And so um, thinking back to when you were in AE, um, maybe you knew that you wanted to progress in your career, probably didn't expect it to be like, like it was, um, but what sort of things... Um, should people who are maybe in an individual contributor role, like an AE or a marketing analyst, uh, but know that they want to grow into a leadership role, what sort of things should they be doing now to prepare themselves um, for where you are now, where you want to continue growing towards? Like, what sort of things do you think are the highest impact? This is going to be a very odd answer,
0: but that goes with the theme of this episode. Um, <laughs> I've been reading a book called Hero on a Mission by Donald Miller. One of the first things he recommends you do is you write your own obituary. It sounds morbid. Mm -hmm. It sounds crazy. But if you write your own obituary, then you can live your life in such a way that you make that the truth. Hmm. So, as I think about what my life wants to look like, I didn't know I was going to be a marketer. But now that I'm here, I love it. (laughs) I've written my life in such a way through my obituary that I'll be doing this I'll become a CMO at some point, probably in the next five to seven years. Like that's the goal. So because I have found the the career path and the career trajectory that I actually want, then I can live my life in such a way that I make what is read at my funeral, the truth and the reality of my life. So that is the greatest piece of advice. Now, for a lot of people, they're like, I have no idea what I want to do. I don't even know how to write an obituary at that point. (laughs) At which point I then give the recommendation, do two things. One, get a sampling of opportunities so you can get a vast understanding of the different experiences. When you look at most people, they do the jobs that their parents did because that is what they knew were options. Or they become a teacher, Mm -hmm. or they become a nurse, or they become a doctor. Because those are things that are publicly readily accessible and we're aware of those opportunities. So if you get a sampling of other job opportunities through like working for free which people hate the idea of working for free but like i'm not doing this to get a paycheck i'm doing this to get a life trajectory that's really important and then the other thing is get around people that did things that your parents didn't do because you can understand what they actually do for a living again i didn't ever set out to be a b2b marketer because i didn't know it existed nobody leaves high school saying i can't wait to be a b2b marketer. like it's just not a thing
1: well, Mason, thanks so much for coming on. Um, we'll put your LinkedIn, we'll put those episodes that you mentioned of the podcast in the description as well, so the the rest of the audience can, can check it out there. And again, thank you for your time, Mason. This was an awesome episode. Excited to get this live, and thank you so much.
0: Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Scrappy ABM. If you enjoyed this week's episode, go ahead and give us a follow so that you don't miss a single episode. We drop every single Monday so that you can start your week off right. And if you're looking for additional great content just like this, go check out ScrappyABM.com. We're building a library of frameworks, guides, templates, processes, and tools so you have everything that you need to build a low-budget, high-impact Scrappy program. Again, thank you for listening to this episode of Scrappy ABM. This has been your host, Nathan Cosby, and we look forward to seeing you in the next one.